0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Ish Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by John Driscoll, CEO of CareCentrics, a company that connects patients with the care they need at home through a national network of over 8,000 credentialed provider locations John has been a leader in healthcare for over 25 years, helping to build major healthcare businesses, including Medco, SureScripts, Oxford Health Plans, and CareCentrics. As an example, he helped facilitate Medco's entry into Medicare, growing the business from a startup to $20 billion in annual revenue. John, thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Delighted to be here. Delighted to be here.
0: So maybe just to start out, how are you doing? How's your family in in the context of COVID-19?
1: Oh, we are we are super lucky, you know. From my 88 year old mom who is safe and sheltering and and socially distant in Cape Cod, to my kids who are spread around the country who have probably been less socially distant, but but have have stayed healthy. And my wife and I are 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 all good. The kids are all right. Everybody's healthy, you know. And we're we've not been really touched by COVID. And it's just been such a weird time. And as a company. We've been very successful at CareCentric, so providing care to the home, with 2,000 employees all from home. But just because of that exposure, with our with our just knowing the the lives that our employees have, there just have been so many lives that have really been harmed or, or lost based on this horrible disease. And we just count ourselves as one of the one of the lucky ones.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. I concur. Like our family has been very lucky as well, and. You can't help but think about the fact that so many lives have been touched by it and living through that has, has been a very interesting time to say the least. I, I'm curious about your background in healthcare and, and kind of just rewinding the clock a little bit. What what got you interested in the healthcare field, kind of way back when you started? My mom was a nurse and 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 had a
1: very idealistic view of what a nurse does. And she's my mom. So of course, I think she's perfect and she was the center of a lot of love and happiness. And so there's sort of a sense of, caregiving and care really matters then and then unfortunately my my sister had cystic fibrosis when i was very young and even when you're an eight or nine year old when you're this this beautiful baby is going in and out of the hospital on a regular basis you realize that you know a day at home is really a blessing and a day at at the hospital you know is a terrible terrible loss and it felt more acute i mean she had cystic fibrosis in the in the 60s and so she passed at her you know about her first Birthday, but I had sort of a, a very clear sense of both the power and the beauty of caregiving and care, and then, and then sort of a sense of of how it can healthcare, bad or good, can intervene in your life in a pretty dramatic way. And then fast forward, when I was in business, I'm sort of an idealist. I'd actually spent time building housing programs for homeless families and mentally ill people before I got to business school. So I'm mission driven, and what I realized when I was a young consultant is in healthcare, there was an opportunity to really do a lot of good by just bringing disruptive new approaches to what I saw as a really flawed system that treated patients as transactions and was really set up from a business perspective to make sure the bills got paid, but not necessarily the care got delivered or that the care was optimal. And so Right after business school, I decided that I was going to try to build better businesses in healthcare to kind of achieve the kind of idealistic hopes that I had for getting care right, provide more solutions for patients and families, and, and probably lighten the burdens that folks like you know we had with a chronically ill baby. What
0: was your first business then that was kind of aligned to that sense of mission?
1: I cold called my way into Oxford Health Plans, which at that point had about 100 employees and less than 100 employees and about 100 million in sales. And I convinced them that I wanted to start, and this is in 1991, a Medicare and a Medicaid-managed care business because I was particularly upset at how poorly coordinated care was for Medicaid, really, initially, and then Medicare-eligibles, folks who were poor and vulnerable. At the time, New York City was doing a one-time mandatory demonstration project in southwest Brooklyn for Medicaid. So it was a really a neat opportunity to really test. You had perfect visibility to the data. You were in a in a working or lower class part of Brooklyn with a heavy Medicaid population. And so it was sort of a a live opportunity for us to build a business and a new care model in a in a part of the country that was really a healthcare desert. I mean we really, it was just a very challenged environment. You know, the most effective part of that part of Brooklyn was the trauma unit in the in the emergency room at the Coney Island Hospital. And we built that. I mean, you'd rather be lucky than smart. At Oxford, we were very successful. The company grew from 100 million to 4.5 million over six years. Our division, Medicare and Medicaid, went from zero to a billion three 000, 000, over the same period. And we were top ten in the country in both of those areas, just in the New York metro area and Philadelphia. And it was all based on sort of what was innovative at the time, which was whole patient care, looking at some of the social economic and emotional challenges that Medicaid, the, the program for the poor Medicare, the program for the elderly eligibles were dealing with. And it turned out that if you were whole patient focused, really trying to connect with what the patient's need was, and that you could actually deliver a lot of, you know, deliver better care at a lower cost and delight patients. I just happened to join Oxford at a time when the market was moving, and what we were offering for the Medicare and Medicaid eligibles was was what what folks wanted, which is a health plan that that saw them at who they are, whether it, it identified the cultural differences in the Latino versus the Russian versus the Chinese community, critically important in Medicaid, or whether it understood the particular challenges of different Medicare eligibles surviving spouses, you know, caring for someone with dementia, aging female with a risk of hip fracture. When you, when you got to the the discrete challenges that were, and then just the challenges of loneliness and food insecurity for the elderly, by focusing on patients first, we built a, we built health plans that were wildly popular at the time.
0: You're touching on so many different social challenges and I'm curious, like what trends have you seen then over the years? that that weren't really so obvious back then, but now in 2020,
1: 2021. Well, the, let, let's start with the phrase that only a healthcare economist could love, the social determinants of health. I mean, that really is just dealing with what are the challenges that a patient has? I mean, here's a great insight. If you're starving, you're probably going to have a hard time thinking about going to the doctor and managing your day-to-day life. I mean, it it seems... Everything that's old is new. Everything that new is old. Everything's old is new. Let me rather than just sound like a cranky old man. In the 60s, when there was a tremendous amount of social resources available, not always aimed at the right things, there were some great doctors who pointed out one, one doctor was writing prescriptions for hamburgers because he said in the Mississippi Delta, getting people a decent, getting meat into their diet was far more important than setting building a community health center, although that was important too. What's exciting to me now is that we are starting, based on the pure economics, which is why it's such an ugly phrase, to deal with the real challenges of being poor, elderly, or chronically ill in America. And I think that's exciting. The other thing that's exciting is that the information that was locked and not portable and blocked that prevented us from doing things like e-prescribing is now treated as sort of a bridge to the future that we are committed to as a company, as a country and a community. I think mean, those are the two biggest changes that I think lay the foundational groundwork, whole patient and sort of access to data that will hopefully allow us to continue to transform and reform our health, uh, the American healthcare system in a way that's sensible and that's in its heart and person-centered.
0: You know, I, I recently was, I wasn't participant in this, but I was watching a debate unfold about that phrase, social determinants of health. And the argument was, that that phrase is so wonky that people can't really understand it and don't relate to it. And so the person was saying, why don't we just say what it is? Why don't we just call it being poor? Because so many of the factors, you know, in social determinants of health come back to poverty. And then there was a whole other side that said, no, no, that doesn't capture it. There are other elements here that we can't miss out. And so then that, that phrase wonky as it may sound, doesn't really do justice to the, to the breadth of issues. I'm just curious if you have any sort of uh, take on this, on this debate, only because I think that we talk about it so much, and so the words matter. And so I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. So for me, because I agree with both of the, the
1: people disagreeing with one another, I think that what bothers me most about the phrase is it does what I think we do too frequently in healthcare as, as healthcare experts or providers, is turn the personal into the technical, and we dehumanize, and I don't think we honor the, the the common vulnerability in humanity by using words like that. So I start with it, and like, that doesn't, that's not a person's. And so I go back to whole patient care, because I think that if you go with whole patient care, which is really, at one point we, at Oxford in the in the 90s, we said, we don't provide health care, we provide human care. And people were like, what are, you, what are you saying? But that's really what this should be about, because healthcare should be human care and i think poverty is hugely we no longer tell the lie that we can solve poor people with healthcare challenges with purely healthcare solutions so that i totally agree with but if you don't include behavioral which is a problem regardless of income or coverage i think we have we have not honored whole patients by not dealing with mental social and behavioral issues in an honest direct way and i think the other piece we sometimes miss is how connected the healthcare problems are with bigger social problems, like the fact that we have a declining lifespan among non-college educated whites who are really suffering from a, a cluster of deaths of despair that are related to opioid abuse, death by suicide, a whole series of other things, alcoholism. I think the only way you don't go down that rat, that spaghetti string of argument is to just go back to whole patient. Can we solve a healthcare problem if we see our neighbors in full? What can we do to help contribute to their health and welfare, small W welfare? And I think if you start there, then you'll naturally deal with issues of income inequality, of racism, of emotion, and of disconnection, all of which I think are quite relevant and honestly, remarkably easy to solve or improve if we deal with them directly.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very eloquent way of summarizing why the focus, these words and phrases remove the person from the equation and you forget that there's a human being behind all this stuff. So I, I think that makes sense. And and so that leads me into my next question, which is around the home, like where the person lives. And so do you mind just sharing an overview of kind of how CareCentrics thinks about and changes how people are thinking about home healthcare specifically?
1: Well, I think, again, because we don't want to get locked into a payment category, we're very clear about saying we want to reform and reimagine care to the home. Our mission is to help people heal and age at home. We sell to health plans and take risk from health plans to keep people out of the hospital in terms of avoiding unnecessary readmissions and reduce the number of days in nursing homes. And we do that by addressing whole person issues, by identifying through analytics and machine learning, what's likely to go right and wrong based on our history by making sure that people understand their diagnosis. And we spend a lot of time focusing on caregivers and supportive folks. It could be the family, it could be in the community who are the invisible superpowers, the caregivers, but are often burdened and uninformed. And finally, we do a really good job organizing and managing the services that are covered to the home, nursing home infusion provided by nurses or not, home health. And then we tie and enable the patient to get the care they need by making sure they understand it with our help. And we tie that from a behavioral perspective to what that patient's goals are because so we can provide more support at home. We can predict what's likely to go wrong. We can make sure you get you have transportation and food. But if, when you're thinking about a patient who who's trying to heal, often healthcare focuses on the specific healthcare checking out know, your hemoglobin A1C for a diabetic. Are you doing the physical therapy for you know you're recuperating from a back surgery? We start with a behavioral point, which is simple, an insight, which is what does the patient care about? Does the patient care about seeing their friends to play cards or their daughter at preschool? Because we want to solve the gaps in care that are associated with care not provided or care that's not necessarily healthcare involved. That's the the whole person stuff. And then we want to tie it back to how do you motivate folks around to do the things they need to do with healthcare, in healthcare, which are kind of dull and complicated. And we can support that to what they care about most. Because often the other point of emotional disconnection of healthcare and, and patients is we don't tie, for example, the rehab to specific things that patients who are recovering want. If you can do that, I think that also lifts up and, and aligns the patient with the care plan in a way that, again, honors the individual patients' or or families' desires. And that's absolutely critical. And and you tie the healthcare goals to people's hearts and dreams. You solve through analytics for what might go wrong. And we can dramatically cut costs, improve outcomes. And by the way, make doctor's jobs easier because we're also feeding information back to the doctor that they've never seen before. We believe that we can transform the healthcare system and really dramatically reduce the days in hospitals and nursing homes and dramatically increase healthy days at home. And we'll take risk from health plans to prove it.
0: You know, it's funny. I, I had a patient, a pediatric patient, who had a central line for cancer chemotherapy I was wondering what his biggest concern was. He was a young boy. And the parents said, you know, he doesn't really even worry at night about the cancer. He feels like that's fine. <laughs> but what he's worried about is being able to swim this summer because he has a central line. He's, he's really, really freaking out about the water getting in the central line. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, absolutely. So we, we talked about that, got it really properly dressed and covered it up really good. And they sent me a picture of him swimming, like maybe a, a month later. And it was such a great feeling. And here I am like over two decades later talking about it. And so it's just one of those things that like, it definitely like comes full circle when you think about like the fact that he cares about swimming. That's what he's motivated by. And everything's centered around how do we get that to work? So what's exciting about that is that
1: we often get wrong in healthcare what Dr. Paul Farmer calls accompaniment. His point is simply... There's too much of the sending of the patients all around from one place to another and that as caregivers care providers care coordinators our job is to accompany the patient along their journey that's what healthcare gets wrong and we believe we've get right more often than not at carecentrics but what we also try to make sure is while accompanying that patient we tie what we want to do and what's best for the patient to what they care about because if we don't do that we're failing to again, we're missing a great soup one of the great superpowers, which is what people's hopes and dreams are. We could tie those to what we need to get in healthcare. It really, it's a true healing moment. So, Dr. Reese, that's that that's a wonderful memory. I'm not gonna steal it, but I am gonna use it.
0: I appreciate that. That's that's very kind of you. And I, I think maybe then what I'd like to leave our listeners with is then your advice for folks that are coming out. And especially at this time with COVID-19 being such a dominant thing in people's mind space, what would you say to someone that's just starting up in their clinical life or, or even thinking about going into clinical medicine at any level? What suggestion or, or advice would you have given what you just said about kind of thinking about the patient first?
1: I think it's to not let the system, the medical industrial complex beat the humanity out of you. You know, I did read, read a really interesting study a few years ago that was looking at how little time internists spend with their patients and how the patients perceived it. And what was interesting is where the doctor made eye contact and put their hand on the patient, the patient actually thought the doctor was spending more time with them. And it is a painful reminder that the medical industrial complex, managed care, hospital, scheduling, it's easy to to sort of get on the the habit trail of activities and miss what drew you in healthcare back in. But I've got to say, hanging on to my idealism and belief that the system can change and that people matter has mattered in every job I've had in the last 30 years and has made it a lot more fun to do the stuff I've done and has lifted up patients and and doctors. And and I think for those starting off in their medical careers, just hang on to your ideals and your heart and you'll be just fine.
0: I appreciate that. I think that's a really, really good note to end on. And having that come from someone that's seen so much like yourself, I think that that carries a lot of weight. So I appreciate you saying that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Dr. Rish Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together.